with me to James. We're looking beginning in chapter 4 tonight. Um, in chapter 3, James had spoken there of the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then uh, immediately uh, he, he almost seems to be answering his own question. Well, if, if that's true, then why is there contention? Uh, why is there conflict? So he, he, he's just anticipating that. He answers that question as well in chapter 4. Uh, one of the things uh, that was interesting to me in, in trying to keep this in context is, again is we've always, I've always heard this passage applied to, to the world uh, in many ways. Why are there wars and why is there conflict among you? And, and it is true. Uh, I think it, it could be applied to that. But remember that James is writing to the diaspora. These are these are Christians gathering in places that are not necessarily accommodating or hospitable to Christians. Uh, they may be enduring certain circumstances culturally and other ways that are making it uh, challenging for them to be faithful uh, to live in those areas. And so if I hold it in that context, uh, it seems to me that perhaps even in their gatherings there were conflict. Uh, there was contention among them and he's kind of getting to the root of that here. So. We'll read verses 1 through 10 together and then uh, just share a few thoughts tonight on these. It begins here, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Uh, I, I included, you could have probably stopped in verse 4, uh, but I think it's very, very much in context to go through uh, to verse 10 as well there. So one of the interesting things about this passage, and keep this in mind, but um, we, we, say, we hear the word friend here, friend of the world, makes yourself an enemy of God. That's a huge contrast, but um, every now and then I just look up the English word just because, just to remind myself <clears throat> of what's involved there. And this was interesting, but a friend is defined as a, a person whom one knows and with whom one has a bond of mutual affection. Another definition was one attached to another by affection or esteem. Interestingly enough, the word affection there means a feeling of strong or constant regard for and dedication to. And, and man, that was, that was sobering to me. Uh, when I thought about anyone who is a friend of the world, he's going to get to uh, uh, anyone who knows and, with, and is a, has a bond of mutual affection with the world and is attached to that world by their affection and esteem 
One who has a feeling of strong and constant regard for and dedication to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, that's really clarifying for me. And that's where he's getting to. But he begins here first, as I said, in verse 18, verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3, uh, speaking of the wisdom from above, being peaceable, gentle, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits and unwavering without hypocrisy. And speaking of the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Then he goes directly, so what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? <clears throat> so he, at, he gets to the question, first of all, what is the source of it? Uh, if you read in that passage, it seems to me that the source of that, he goes on to say, is your pleasures that wage war in your members. Uh, he could be the, uh, some translations may use the word lust there. That's the, that's the source of the conflict. So if I'm looking, for, looking around and wondering what all the contention is and all the conflict, uh, I need to look to that sort of source. Uh, that may be the source. Uh, I think it could be uh, negatively, if you expand it even wider, sometimes uh, the source is someone else's desires waging war and you standing against that happening. And so it may be a defensive posture. But the root of all the contention is, is these pleasures or these lusts of ours waging war in our members and even among the, uh, even among the fellowship. He could possibly even mean here as well. Again, he's writing uh, to people who are gathering, the diaspora, those who are uh, gathering as Christians. These are Jewish Christians who have uh, fled Jerusalem because of persecution and are in the provinces of Rome. So, so he's, not, he's speaking about contention and conflict, not in the world at large. It, it may be true, there may be some application there, but his audience is whoever this letter is going to amongst these congregations gathering in those provinces. So in those gatherings, the source of conflict among you, he says, is your lust that wage war in your members. These are unsatisfied lust. He goes on to say the root of that is that these lusts are not satisfied. It's interesting to me in verse 2 where he says, you, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. So my, the, the desires waging war in my members cause me to lust for things, and the fact that I can't get them, he seems to go to this extreme, you murder. And I think he's speaking of the, of the end result of this these lustful desires and this conflict that arises out of there, envy and all those things, the end of that is murder. The hatred develops in the end of that. So I think he's speaking hyperbolically here, that, but that's the essence, in the essence, that's the end of it. And so there's two things going on here. The, the root of this is my lust that are waging war in my members and the thing I desire, my inability to have that thing. So now I'm not, not only do I have this desire, I'm not getting this desire met. It's not being satisfied. And as a result, all this stuff explodes and it ultimately can end even in murder. He says later on in verse 2 there, you are envious. And so envy and fighting and quarreling, all those he's stating the, the, the extreme as it were first. You kill. I mean, you're murdering. And that's the to me, that's a warning in regards to unsatisfied lust. The issue is not to satisfy the lust. The issue is to recognize it as a fleshly lust and, and to put to death, as it were, or to crucify the fleshly lust so that the conflict doesn't escalate into envy, conflict, arguing, fighting, and ultimately murder if it goes far enough. And so that's the warning here. The source is your lust and your 
pleasures. Uh, I, I put in my notes here the appetites of the, of the old man. Uh, the desires, it may be in their context, perhaps, perhaps it was some sort of stability. I was thinking this morning about uh, if they're uh, moved out from the Jerusalem area and they're in these provinces, they're in a new, a new environment, there may be a new economic base, social, cultural things. Um, there's a, there would be an anxiety about how am I going to make a living, how can I provide for my family. There are a lot of things that we may need here, so there may be a an over-attention to how to provide that they got carried away with. In fact, maybe they were not trusting God for provision. Maybe they should have just worked quietly and faithfully and trusted God for the provision of their needs, no matter what anybody else had, that God would meet their needs and work faithfully there. But maybe they were in that congregation, and maybe some people were prospering in that society and others weren't, and then they began to be jealous. And why can't I have that? I need that for my family. And, I, and all of a sudden, all these all these desires are circulating underneath, and they escalate into this sort of trouble. Uh, beyond, beware, um, this is an exhortation, but beware your appetites. Um, beware the things that the old man, in fact, I think this is tied to becoming an enemy of God if we're a friend of the world, but Whenever we, whenever we have these carnal appetites and we satisfy them, even, to the, even in the most minute way, we strengthen, as it were, the appetite. We're not starving it, we're feeding it. And its appetite grows. And we give it a little more. And, we, and it grows even stronger. And pretty soon, we're being guided by these carnal appetites. And even all the while making a profession of being a Christian in the faith. And I think that's ultimately what he's warning against here. So the source is those appetites. Put a gauge or a meter on the desires. Evaluate those desires. Are these merely for the satisfaction of the carnal lust? Uh, I mean, we have legitimate desires. We can evaluate those things. We can trust God to provide for those desires as well. <clears throat> but beware of your appetites. He says again <clears throat> in verse 2, what are the consequences of these lusts un, unbridled or unmoderated or un, ungaged? He says clearly in here, murder, envy, and fighting or the quarreling. That's where it rises from. If you think of even in, within the church family, uh, back through your life as a Christian, how often have church conflicts often been rooted around all the people or a, a portion of the people desiring something fleshly, and then there was contention that rose up in the church. Perhaps it was groups that were warring against one another. We want this, or we want that, or we want that. Carl used to joke and tell the story of No Peg Baptist Church, where a church literally split because of, of where they wanted to have a coat rack to hang the coats in as people came into the sanctuary. They literally split over the decision as to where that would be. And one of them called themselves the No Peg Baptist Church. They didn't want a peg in their church. That's, that's carnality. That's conflict arising out of the pleasures, waging war in my members, and I want it satisfied, and yours are different, and you want those satisfied, and, and the satisfying of either of our lusts bring us into conflict because yours can't be satisfied with what I want, and mine can't be with what you want, and the next thing you know, we're in all sorts of conflict. Uh, it seems almost, almost non-existent in Baptist churches these days of conflict over a dispute over the meaning of Scripture. 
And that's, we're seeing it more and more, but, but there used to be contentions and whole councils in regards to the right understanding of Scripture. But we fight about carpet colors nowadays. <laughs> we fight about uh, uh, silly things. We just, we, we've long dispensed with caring whether or not the doctrine is true. We're worried more about the color of the furniture. And, and this is, that's just carnality. And that's what I think he's speaking of here. Those are the consequences of this is that we are quarreling and there are conflicts in verse 2 and there are envy and fighting. You lust and you cannot get what you want. Uh, that's the most basic uh, of instincts, isn't it? I mean, from early on, look at your children. Uh, I want this. Mom, dad says, nope, you're not getting that. What do they do? They pitch a fit. It's instinctive. I want it. I don't get it. I'm angry. Uh, He's warning about that same appetite in these Christians who are gathering together. The second thing he mentions here for this conflict is that you don't, you don't have it. You lust and can't get it, so you're envious and cannot obtain it, so you fight and quarrel. And then he says another reason that you don't have it is because you do not ask. Uh, now, we think in terms of asking in prayer, and, and perhaps that's what he means. In fact, that probably is what he means, but... The interesting thing about that is the fact that they don't pray. These are professing Christians. And had, were they to pray, it might, it might put them on guard in regards to what it was they were lusting after. In other words, I find it really hard to pray to God for something that I know that he doesn't want in my life according to his word. I find it extremely difficult to pray to God that I would be super wealthy. Or, or, or some, other, some other satisfying thing or some other thing the world would tell me that I need to get by in the world. So it's difficult to pray for something that you know or haven't even entertained as to whether or not it would be God's will for you in your life. And so they didn't pray at all. And so some of the things they may have desired, they weren't getting simply because they didn't ask. And the reason that they probably weren't asking is because they probably knew that they were asking from the lust of their flesh and dared not ask God for those things. So I don't think he's saying so much that you can have all the lustful desires you want and the way to get them is not to get them from somebody else, but ask God and he'll give them to you. That's the prosperity gospel. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's reminding them that you don't have the thing that you desire for because you don't pray for it. In fact, you know better than to pray for something like that from God. It's inconsistent with what you understand to be the Christian life. But you don't have it because you don't pray. And you don't pray because you know you ought not have it. <laughs> that may be what he means here. So you do not have because you do not ask. In verse 3, you ask and do not receive because when you do ask, you don't get it because you ask with wrong motive, motivations. And what is the motivation? He says that you might spend the thing wanted on your lust, which I, which I understand him to mean that you might use that thing to satisfy this underlying lust that's running around or warring within you. So you ask for it. Maybe you're so bold as to ask God for the thing that will satisfy the lust, but God withholds it because of the motivation in it is to satisfy those lusts. We were sharing with the kids Sunday morning, and I said, it's really strange to me because some of these things that they might have wanted were in and of themselves perhaps neutral. Uh, it, might be, uh, it might be that God would grant something in your life that he would, would not grant in mine because he knows my heart. 
He might grant you success if your motivation was through that success you wanted to be a blessing to others, but he might withhold that same success from me because I would spend it on my lust. The the reason for my asking is that I might satisfy or feed this carnal desire. He's not going to give me that. Not as a Christian. Why would he give me that? Now, there may be someone else who wants the very same thing, and in their motivation, they realize that I, through this avenue, I can honor God and minister to the poor. I was thinking about early in James when he talks about the poor and the rich in these fellowships. And it could be that in, a, in, a, in an ideal fellowship, the poor man could come in and in the church he could find support and encouragement and maybe, maybe material aid to sustain him in a time of poverty. And the wealthy man could come into the same church and have an avenue to be a blessing to others. And they could fellowship rich and poor and benefit from one another and God would be glorified. But it doesn't work like that often. They were shunning one because they didn't have anything to offer and accommodating the other in the hopes that they could offer more. Those are the motivations that are floating around in these fellowships and James is speaking to those things. You don't have because you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it or satisfy it upon your lust. I was talking to someone not very long ago but we were they were just jokingly, they don't do the lottery, but they said, maybe one of these days I'll win the lottery, you know, and all those things. And I said, I could play the lottery every single day of the week, and I will guarantee you the Lord will see to it that I never win a dime. Because I, don't, I think the Lord knows that if, if those needs were satisfied completely by worldly things, I would be tending to look away from him for my very sustainment of life. And so, they, so he may give you a million dollars. You may run into a windfall somewhere. And he's entrusted you with that. And God bless you. And I'm not in the least bit envious. But I also know that I could pray all day long for that. And the Lord would never grant me that. Because it would feed the very thing that the cross is crucifying in me. I don't want to make it live and die at the same time. And so sometimes you ask and you do not receive, James says, because you're asking with wrong motives so that you may spend it upon your pleasures. This is where it gets interesting because if that's the case, verse 4, look what he says. You adulteresses. I mean, that's some heavy language. You unfaithful. Uh, you you're a harlot, as it were. You're an adulteress. I mean, that, that has the idea of a, of a mate going outside the marriage to satisfy the desires uh, that are operating within the marriage rather than turning to her husband or to her, her, his wife to satisfy those desires in the marriage. He says, I got these desires. I got the right avenue for the satisfaction of these things, but I'm going elsewhere and I'm going outside the relationship and filling my desires somewhere else. That's what he calls these people. These people who are angry and contentious and quarreling in conflict and even extreme, to the extreme of murder if it's not checked because you are feeding these desires with the things of the world. And you as professing Christians are acknowledging by your profession that my desire is for my Lord and that I, that I am sustained by His grace. And so you are departing from your bride or from your groom Christ, as it were, and finding your satisfaction in another groom, which is the world. That's why I think he says you're an adulteress. 
I mean, that's strong language. Rarely would we think that these simple gratifications of fleshly desires is adulterous. Would you think that way? Well, I slipped a little. Well, none of us are perfect. We think like that. None of us would look at ourselves in the mirror after having gratified some minor area of the flesh and say, look at ourselves and say, you adulterous. You've been unfaithful to your groom, Christ. You found satisfaction and pleasure somewhere outside of Christ or out of the context of Christ. You adulterer. I mean, that's how we ought to think of ourselves because James is using that strong language very intentionally here. And he says here, do you not know? Do you not know this? You professing Christian, you who are gathered in Christ's name, do you not know that friendship is the, with the world is hostility towards God? He goes on there to say, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's where I've been camped this week on that definition got me started. Think of it again. Whichever of you who knows and has a bond of mutual affection with the world and is attached with a great esteem for the world and with a feeling of strong and constant regard for and dedication to, you have made yourself in that fleshly desire an enemy of God. Because He is to be those things for you. He is to be all those things for you. And as a Christian, you are yielding and acknowledging that my life is from the Lord. My joy and my hope and grace and all that I am and all that I hope is from the Lord. My, my, my dedication and my devotion is to Him alone. And through His grace, He provides, what I've said before, an enhancement of my enjoyment of the things that He provides in this life. But my priority devotion is to the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So when you, you think about what He's saying here, if you're acting in the way that He's described... If there is contention and strife and quarreling among you because you have these lustful desires and you can't get them. And when you can't get them, you get envious and, and you start having fights among one another. And then and you don't ask for the Lord for them at all. And when you do ask, it's only for the reason that you can satisfy this carnal craving in your own heart. If you're acting in that way, you have, you have completely set, your apart for, set yourself apart from your own profession as a Christian. You've embraced the world. You've, you've said that all that the world has to offer is what I desire. And the world will satisfy those desires. And I can't look to God to satisfy and even to create righteous desires and then to fulfill those desires. I would rather have the world feel, feel those things for me. And he says if you do that, you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. Essentially, you're an enemy because you're saying to God by your actions and your desires that you care not or care nothing about the desires that he creates in us and that he grants by the presence of himself, as it were. You are an enemy of God. You're pushing God away and saying you are insufficient. I use the analogy in the garden. And that's exactly the appeal to Eve in the garden. God was everything for them. 
He had provided for them in every single way. Had the one tree in the garden and Satan comes into the garden and uses that one tree to draw Eve away from that. There is the, here's the gist of his temptation. There is a satisfaction that can be found apart and in disobedience to God who is your satisfaction. And the moment she turns to the tree and takes of the tree, she's acknowledging that there is a satisfaction and a desire that can be satisfied somewhere outside of God. And thus the fall. And thus we keep falling when we believe the lie of the world that, we can, that it can satisfy us. If you're here and you've lived as an unbeliever for a long time, you know from personal experience that every promise the world makes to satisfy a desire is a lie. Because sin brings pleasure for a season, but at the end thereof is death. And you find out at the end of that road, this didn't satisfy the desire at all. In fact, I, it doesn't even define what the desire was. It just, it just gave me a counterfeit and caused me not to even investigate the desire itself. I had an impulse and the world said, here's what you need. And I embraced it and I thought surely it was satisfying, but at the end of it, I was not satisfied. Why does the drug addict keep taking more and more drugs? Why does the alcoholic keep drinking more and more? Why does the adulterer keep having more and more illicit affairs? Why do we keep doing things that are destructive to us? Because the world says this will satisfy, didn't that time, but try it again. Because sometimes third time, such third time's a charm. And we keep and keep on buying the lie. When we live our lives like that, we make ourselves an enemy of God. That's serious stuff. That's serious stuff, especially for those who are gathering, calling themselves Christian, who are tiptoeing and trying to find the balance of letting the world satisfy certain things and letting God satisfy the other things. And we're separating those things out and, and, and thinking to ourselves that we can somehow tiptoe our way right into the gates of heaven with that kind of mentality. There is nothing like that. Jesus says, if a man doesn't hate his mother, father, sister, brother, hey, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. you got to lay everything aside and find all, strive to find all of your satisfaction in Christ. And the danger that we face, I think, in our generation is as I've already described. If you, if you grant that one fleshly carnal desire to be satisfied in this world, you made it that much stronger. In other words, if you just said, no, I will not grant this. I will not yield to this fleshly desire. I will, I will acknowledge that it is there. If it is fleshly and carnal and lustful, I will confess that to God, repent, ask God to give me a new heart, to create in me a new heart. Lord, would you shape my desires for heavenly things and things revealing your glory? If we do that in our lives, we weaken that thing. We weaken that old man because now he's getting weaker and weaker because he's never being fed. But if we toy around and feed him here, and feed him there, feed him over there on the fringes, all the while he's gaining strength. And you'll find out that if you do that long enough, somewhere down the road, he's got all the strength. And he's calling all the shots. And now whatever he desires, he'll do it. And if you've got a little bit of religious, religious inclinations left in you, you'll put a garb of righteousness over that. You'll attend church and you'll do the Sunday school classes. You might even preach in a pulpit. You might, you might cloak it in some religious garb all you want to, but the carnal man is growing in strength and you won't long be able to keep that robe of righteousness. And even if you could deceive men, you can't deceive God. It's not, it's not a joke. 
that for us to feed that makes, our, makes us to be a friend of the world, makes us hostile towards God and makes us an enemy towards God. Verse 5, he says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Uh, some commentators uh, say here that he doesn't really cite a specific exact text here, but I think he means more so the scripture peaks, uh, speaks broadly to the, to the truth that he says. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And I do believe he means the Holy Spirit here. I understand that some people think he's talking about the spirit of man. And I grant that. But I think he's not quoting a text as much as he is an overall truth of Scripture. You're, you're an adulteress and you made yourself an enemy of God because what are you doing? You're feeding the old man who is bearing fruit unto destruction. And he... Your father jealously desires the spirit which he has caused to dwell in us. It is the fruit of the spirit that he is desiring. He wants the spirit, as it were, to be fed, to be sanctifying in our lives, to be producing fruit. That's the desire of the father in your life. But you're saying to the father, when you're letting the world be your friend, you're saying to the father, offering up the fruits of this world. He's jealous for his spirit. He don't, want, he don't want the world's offerings. He doesn't want the fruit of the world satisfying fleshly lust. He don't want our lives bearing that. He wants our lives bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And I think that's what he means here. He jealously desires the Spirit in which he has made to dwell in us. So naturally, for us, to, for us to negate that or to quench that or to contradict that and, and find our satisfaction somewhere else is to be producing a fruit that he doesn't desire at all. In fact, he, he means by the Spirit to put to death that old man who has those old desires. Let me just say that'll be a ministry or that'll be a, a, a lifelong process. And from the beginning of my Christian life, I've... I've dwelt a lot on what does it mean to be crucifying the old man. Paul said, I die daily. What does it mean to be dying to self daily? I mean, obviously, it's faith. We believe that in Christ we have been crucified with Christ, buried with him, raised to new life with him. And upon that reality, positionally, we try to live our lives. But we, we still have these battles. We're not sanctified wholly yet. So there is the ongoing putting to death every time we get a sense of the carnality and the old nature desiring and rising up in us. We ought to recognize that very quickly and yield in that moment to the truth of God's word and to his spirit and pray and plead that God through the cross and through Christ would put to death more fully this old man in us. Verse 6, he gives us hope here, but he gives a greater grace. Now, this is interesting as well. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wondered if the, uh, if the greater grace here spoken of wasn't his opposition to you. That's the greater grace. He don't give you what you want. He, there's a greater grace here. He's in opposition to that sort of pride. So you're feeding the flesh. You're swelling up in your pride and self-sufficiency. You're looking horizontally for all the satisfaction of every desire in this world. And you're swelling up with pride. And then God comes up against you. He is in opposition to that. That could be a greater grace if it moves us to repentance from that. But it could be a greater grace that he causes us to be humbled by the very things he began this letter with, trials and tribulations that you, that you find yourself in the midst of. He gives greater grace. 
And I think we would do well to remember that in our pridefulness, you've heard me say before, I don't know how the Christian who's met Christ can continue long in pridefulness without being crushed by the weight of his glory at some moment along the way. People that say they know Jesus Christ and I'm a Christian and go all their life in pridefulness and self-sufficiency and even arrogance, I have my doubts as to whether or not they've met the Christ that I met because I don't know how that can exist in the presence of that Christ. And God is in opposition to that altogether. And so he gives us instruction in verse 7. If we find ourselves being satisfied by this world and we recognize and feel this compulsion to be repenting and turning away from that, well, the greater grace is that he gives grace to the humbled. Submit, he says to us, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submitting to God is hard, isn't it? Especially, uh, there's a conversation I was having with my friend this morning, and every one of them guys are constantly asking, is it time to go? Is it time to go? Is it time to go? And I, my counsel was, be careful with that. I'm not saying it's a question you should never ask, but be careful with that because your flesh don't like the situation you're in. And it'll, it'll convince you it's time to go. And it might be that it's exactly the time to stay if the flesh that's telling you that is what's to be crucified in that moment. So it may be, stay there, let them punish you, <laughs> let, them, let them flog you until the flesh is no longer relying upon itself, and, and then you'll be released into the freedom of the sons of God. And then you may be effective there, or then the Lord may take you somewhere else uh, more prepared. But the issue there is submitting to God. And that's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, issue-by-issue thing. Know his word, know what the will of the Lord is. Recognize that your flesh does not want to go that way. It doesn't want to die to self. It, doesn't, it, it enjoys exaltation usually. And it, it loves to be fed and satisfied in its lust. Recognize that and refuse and do not yield to that. Submit to God. And in the submitting to God, you resist the devil um, I hear some people with this text and they, the implication is run from the devil. There, well, there may be texts to justify that, but the idea here, my understanding is it's more of a military term. It is almost set, array yourself against the devil. That's instructive. They don't mean do that and run away from him, submit to God and run away from him. Submitting to God is to array yourself in front of the devil and all of his forces because you have... You have demonstrated that that moment that your loyalty to your commitment, as it were, your devotion to this God and to the truth of his word. Array yourself against the temptations of the devil in that moment, against the devil himself. And in this context, that's the one driving these motivations of the old man and the feeding of the old flesh. Array yourself having submitted to God. Array yourself up in battle formation against the devil, against those things. That's how serious this is. So submit to God. Array yourself against the devil. And in the sight and in the, I think, in the in the recognition of the power of God on our lives in that moment, it says there the devil will flee away. Will he come back? Yes, he even did Christ at a more opportune moment. He'll be back, and he'll be back maybe next week, maybe the, maybe the next day, maybe 10 years from now, and he may come back with a vengeance. He may come back with a whole new strategy, but this, this strategy is the same. Submit to God, array yourself against his temptations, against his, against his assaults, 
and he will flee from you, not because you are strong in yourself, because that's what you were seeking in the world, but because you were strong in Christ. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Here's the repentance part. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, your double-minded. The implication is, if you're acting in the way that he began this part of the chapter with, that's the problem. You're sinning, and you're double-minded, and you've drifted away. You've moved away from God. You've taken to yourself the, the, the responsibility of satisfying those desires. And you, you don't have the wisdom to determine often what is the right desire and what is a God-glorifying desire. So he's saying basically turn from that. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Uh, verse 9 is sobering. Be miserable and mourn and weep. We don't like that. We don't like that. But if that's the pathway to verse 10, then that's what he's calling upon. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let me just say here, if the Lord by his spirit and the truth of his words catches you in that first category, if the Lord illuminates for you, Larry, you are feeding the flesh, which was the thing destroying you to begin with. You're dead to rights. You, you are willingly looking away from me as your satisfaction and satisfying something more temporal and more immediate by the things this world offers. You are making yourself, Larry, an enemy of me. When he catches me like that, this is the response of my heart. Mourning and weeping. Misery. That's the, that's the conviction there. Be, and he's saying, be that way. Be that way. What happens to us often is the Lord calls us out, as it were, in an area. We feel that conviction, and we run from that. I don't like that. And so we don't pray, and we don't go to church, and I can't pray this morning. And I'll, Listen, if you find yourself in a place to where you're ashamed to pray, all the more reason to get on your knees and just cry. Just get on your knees before God. He knows your heart. He knows that the conviction has pierced you. Just get on your knees before God and acknowledge that I am a sinner in the hands of an angry God, as it were. I am dependent, God, wholly upon your mercy. Forgive me, and as Psalmist prays in Psalm 51, create in me or restore in me the joy of my salvation. But don't be afraid when God calls us out to be miserable and to mourn and to weep. It's not a time to laugh. He says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Submit to God. Resist the devil. This to me is demonstrative of repent. Turn away from those things. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And then this great verse at the end, and he will exalt you. To me, that's amazing because it's almost as if it's full circle. What were you doing being envious Desiring all these things. What were you doing? You were, you were essentially elevating self. I need this to rise. I need this to satisfy. I need this to make much of me. I want this. I want this. I want this. I can't get this. I'm mad. You got it. That's not fair. I'm mad at you now. I'll even go to the extreme of murder and hatred because I can't get the things that'll draw, lift me up according to my own ideal. And he's basically saying, you've got it all upside down. Recognize that that is the flesh at work. Repent of that. Turn away from that. Array yourself against the devil having submitted to God. 
Come in a different direction. Let the weight of God and His glory, let it press you down to the point that you are miserable and you weep and you mourn. And stop your laughing and lollygagging and joyful living in the carnality of this world and recognize the desperate condition you are in. And when you get all the way down there and you feel like you can't get any lower than the dirt that you're lying in, then He will exalt you. And you will be exalted. I don't know about you, but I am, I am up to here. <laughs> I am fed up with self-exaltation in my own life. I live my life that way. I, I was exalting self when I knew in my, in my heart of hearts that there was nothing there to exalt. This, is, this man is corrupt to the core, but I, my aim in life is that you won't think that. And so I would exalt myself at every corner. And I've tasted of that before. Let me tell you something, and you know it as well if you have. That's an empty, that is a, that is a, weight, loss gain, a weight loss plan for sure. You will dwindle away spiritually speaking. If you, if you live that sort of lie, I don't want to exalt myself at all. I don't want, I don't want the world exalting me. I, I don't want any of that because it's empty and it's not feeling and it's not ultimately satisfying. So James' exhortation is yield to what he's saying here. And when you, when you feel, when you're completely humbled and the world looks at you and there is nothing to be admired in you at all, you are not exalted, you are a humbled person. When the world looks at you and discards you because you're not prideful and arrogant and desiring and pursuing all the things that they are doing, when you become an enemy of the world in that sense, then you become the friend of God. And then when He exalts you, uh, you are exalted. And that's feeling, that's not... Because you understand it, it is because of no value in you. It is because of the value in God himself. And that's a different, that's a different experience altogether. I want that, but I can't get there by exalting myself. And I think that's James's lesson. Many more that you could say here. But suffice it to say that when we find ourselves in conflict, when we find ourselves in in these sort of situations, it would be a good practice for us to ask, what's driving this? What am I really wanting here? Uh, is it something that I want? Is it something that's going to exalt me or satisfy me in this moment? Is it somewhere where I can give, give ground here, give grace? Am I, what am I seeking here? And I think we would probably eliminate a lot of our conflicts, even in our relationships, not even, not even inside the church walls, but in our relationships in general, uh, if we understood when there was contention, if both parties would say, what are we contending about here? What am I after and what are you after? Uh, maybe we're both wrong, maybe one of us is wrong, but maybe we can come to some conclusion about that. So wise words from James tonight. So stand with me, please. I was thinking friendship with the world doesn't mean that we don't live in the world. It doesn't mean that I don't like a, a pretty fall day. Uh, it doesn't mean that I don't like a kayaking trip. Uh, I used to like golf, but I don't care that much for it anymore, but it'll make you mean. Uh, so I'm not saying that I'm to be an alien in that sense. We live in this world. God created this world and he'll redeem it someday. 
And so we're created to live in this world, but where is my affection? Uh, is it in the things of this world or is it in the one who created this world and who will redeem it again someday? That's the question. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, grace. Uh, Lord, you do, do give greater grace. And Lord, thank you that by your spirit and through your truth and even through circumstances and providence and as James has already shared through trials, uh, you do humble us, not, not to destroy us, but that we might be rightly lifted up that we might stand again, not relying upon self, not glorifying self, not, not befriending the world, but standing in the midst of the world as a, as a beacon, as it were, of light, of one who's found their satisfaction in the creator of the world rather than in the world created. And, and so help us, help us, Lord, to, to identify these carnal lusts that creep up in our hearts and our soul that can be so subtle sometimes just a pride uh, to win an argument as minimal as that. And it could be even more severe. But, Father, help us to be sensitive to where, to where the old man is seeking to reestablish his hold in our lives and help us immediately to come to the cross and to be reminded that he is crucified with Christ and help us to come up from that experience come up off of our knees more fully in the new man and help us to be found obedient and faithful all the days of our life. Bless those who've come tonight, Father, uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.